Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. The way that, that Robert's describing this kind of emotional entrainment that happens particularly among people that know each other or people who agree about their ideology. There is also an entrainment about their ideology, like we were talking about this sort of liberal, neoliberal, authoritarian dialogues that are going on or, you know, conversations that can't be dialogues. There's an entrainment, there's an emotional entrainment that's happening in the group. But if you get too specific in putting your own meanings on somebody else's gestures, then that's called prejudice. That's called bias, or that's called projection or attribution. Then it's not. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That. You can't read too much into it, but what I'm what I'm talking about is on the level of what's ordinarily called something like vibes. Yeah, you, you yeah. can pick up Subtle a vibe. Communication. People now, talk about you can that mis- all the time. misinterpret yeah. You that. misinterpret it too. You yeah. can misinterpret it, but on the other hand, you can also pick it up. Mm-hmm. That happens sometimes. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, even, and even if the other person, you could check with the other person and say, no, 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 no. Because right. they're and they're not because they're not to. conscious of they're it. They're not lying to you. They just don't know it. So, but but it's more on the level of vibes. Now, how much of our relationship is um, how important I should say are vibes in a relationship? I think they're quite important. Oh yeah, they are. They're very foundational. And, uh, yeah. Could you read again the definition you re- you read from Robert's book? Propaganda's is- intent is to circumvent thought and reflection, and it undermines learning from experience, which I found particularly meaningful because direct experience in our life and what we know about that. The propagandist intends to dominate another's mind precisely to prevent him or her from originating his or her own thoughts. Yeah. You're doing it, there is an intention, there is a wish, there is a desire behind uh-huh. it, uh-huh. just not aware of it. Right. So it's not unintentional, it's, un- it's unconscious. It's unconscious. I, I, I should add that this level of communication I'm talking about is not always propagandistic. Uh-huh. That it's also used for other purposes, other intentions, which is to convey emotional states. It's a, it's a form of emotional communication, so you can kind of produce mm-hmm. an emotional state, and you know, artists do this very well. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah, uh, well speakers in, do in, it too. In, in another person, uh, yeah, speakers, good, good orators know mm-hmm. how to do it, mm-hmm. but ordinary people do it just when they're talking to each other in, the, in, this, in this channel. It's a way of, I'm showing you how I feel. That's not 
intended to keep you from thinking. In fact, it's intended to help you think and understand uh, and to have a certain kind of experience that you're supposed to learn from. The difference is that if I'm just conveying emo my emotional state to you, let's say, letting you know that I feel angry or sad or something like that, if that's all I'm doing, then I am letting you be free to make what you will of that experience and to do, to do what you want with it. If, if I'm showing you I'm sad as part of a, of a, of a larger maneuver to get you to do something to make me not sad, then that's different. That's more like propaganda. Yeah. Well, you know, uh -huh. today I was talking to Lisa Pressman about parents having anxieties about COVID virus and then kind of conveying the anxieties without words. She said, and I believe, and I think this is where also it's important to use your words because your words actually give a succinct sense of what actually you want to convey or you intend to convey. It could be that your entrainment, your emotional entrainment, is conveying something that you habituated to as a child, that you use to defend yourself, but it isn't actually where you want to communicate with the other person. So that's why I think words, I know that Harold Searles, the psychoanalyst who did a lot of work with schizophrenics talks a lot about the difference between a touch and a word. He said a touch can mean so many things. If I touch your arm, I might be touching your arm because I'm controlling you or because I'm loving you or because I'm angry with you. But only the words will actually divide that up so that I can say, oh, I'm feeling close to you. Whereas you might receive that as Oh, she's trying to control me, you know. And so it's putting things into words that, that often reduces the meaning of propaganda. That's very well you know? put, and I think that's where psychoanalysis comes in. Because what we try to do as psychoanalysts is pick up on these vibes, mm -hmm. right? And it's not listen, just listening to the words and kind of solving puzzles and, you know, oh, well, you, you, know, you made this slip or you, you know, it's mm -hmm. not that kind of stuff at all. But the, you know, some people may think it is, it's really putting these things that, that fly below the verbal level into words, mm -hmm. translating them into words so that they, they can be thought about. You know, whatever they may mean or something, we're not really, again, this is, may not be the popular view, but we're not really that interested in explaining to people what their words or their emotions or whatever it is we pick up from them, what it means. We're interested in having them just know what they are, know what's going on inside them on this level, holding up a mirror. Mm -hmm. So they, and we hope they can recognize themselves in that mirror. So, you know, the problem there is that's the analyst on a one-way street. That's the analyst as the blank screen at the mirror. And the analyst is also having an experience, a subjective experience, an emotional experience. And, you know, that's why even going back to the Beyond sort of basic assumption group, as long as Beyond is in the room, he's having a big effect. Whether he's saying something or not, he's a big human being, he has big experience, he makes big impressions. 
And so the actual sitting in the room is actually a big impression on somebody else. You can't sit in the room like a chair sits in the room. You know, you, you convey through your vibes something. You're not like a chair. You're not even like a dog because the other person recognizes you as human. So they recognize that you also are having a world of experience. And I think sometimes some of the bad, the bad, let's say, marketing that psychoanalysis gets is because the psychoanalyst wanted to appear like a blank screen or like a mirror. And so then the idea was the psychoanalyst is going to tell you how you are thinking, but the psychoanalyst is not going to tell you how he is thinking. He's just going to tell you how you're thinking. Well, that's a very good point, Polly. And, and uh, you know, the, the mirror I was talking about is not a literal mirror, obviously. The psychoanalyst personality is the mirror. Mm -hmm. The psychoanalyst receives the, what, I guess, what, what would the analogy be? The light waves, the mm -hmm. emotional light waves from the patient, and, which make an impression. Mm -hmm. That's right. And then you use that impression to convey in words um, what your impression is what the impression is that you're getting from the patient there's one other thing I wanted to oh about being you know it was just his personality and he was a big guy and a reputation other people have done this who weren't beyond uh, I know and weren't know. big guys and didn't have huge reputations and they get the same result I think not being a, a psychoanalyst but it, the artist in working with the the creative individuals, the dancers and the actors and the opera singers and all the people that are part of my work, when we're working on these very deep inner states, oftentimes they don't have words. They can express it through the dance or through the music or the way that we work where we go into the song, we go into the body. What's well, especially music. I mean, music, the music is can a big evoke key. powerful emotions yeah. without ever coming anywhere near a word. Yeah, and they, had, they don't know how to say, they don't know how to talk about what they just experienced, except they had an experience that they, that they know, mm -hmm. and it informs them in a way that they can communicate, but they can't mm -hmm. put it into words. Well, you know, visual imagery also. And visual imagery, because, too. Because, yeah. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of research is showing that metaphor or a visual image precedes speech. Right. That it is the visual image or the metaphor that organizes the speech. So the impact visually, and we know from listening to speakers that when people are asked afterwards what do they remember, the very first thing they, they remember is the way the person looks mm -hmm. and how they moved and what they look like. Then they remember the tones of voice and then they remember content in terms of what they actually remember. So the visual impact seems to be primary and visual imagery seems to be primary for language. So all of that goes into propaganda also. Definitely. Know. Well, you could also make a case for, for music being primary because sound is the first or, yeah. you know, sense Perception that is activated organized. in the, yeah. the fetus. Right. And yeah. here's the, the, so the baby hears the sound of the mother's voice, hears the sound of the mother's blood rushing through the placenta, right. uh, hears muffled conversations coming from the outside. Uh, and here's that music, here's that rhythm and that tone, tone, tonal changes and, and changes in loudness that are the elements of music. So uh, there's, I mean, Donald Meltzer came up with this 
cut and dry, but he said that there's a, a level of language that is based on music. How did he think subjectivity was conveyed? Our own experiences? Well, through music. Through the music we convey our where we're coming from. This is, this is developmentally. First through music. Oh, you're talking about developmentally, okay. First through yeah. music and then through words. Uh -huh. Because I, I think that tone of voice and so on do convey a lot, but words also convey. And I, Oh yeah, you know, yeah. And that's I why we of, have words. I want to kind of shift over to some of the some of the um, issues that are surrounding propaganda, suggestion, and truth. You know, and I want to just sort of make one statement that I think is provocative. I don't think that Donald Trump is a good propagandist. He does not convey a propaganda from the point of view of, let's say, emotional entrainment or any kind of please join me in seeing this this way. He is, in fact, much more like an autistic person. He is more like a person who has an inability to pick up on other people's feelings, an inability to join with the group. And so I feel like he gets so misunderstood when people see him as a propagandist or as a, a narcissist, because he's so bad at both of those. Whereas, um, you know, although I never understood the words of Osama bin Laden from people I know who listened to him and could understand him, he had a wonderful way of people to feel things right along with him. And I understood that Hitler did as well, that he was able to bring the crowd along and it's, it's kind of the opposite with, with Trump. It's like he's irritating, he's annoying to listen to, and he doesn't bring people along with him. And I wonder if that's one reason why people get attracted to him, because they think, he doesn't sound like a propagandist. He doesn't sound like he's trying to entrain your emotions into believing what he is saying, you know? He's not an orator. He is not a person that you can actually enjoy listening to at long, for long periods of time. And that is, to me, is an interesting thing about him that I feel is, is rarely remarked on, you know, that, that he is, he's not good at those things. Well, we're, we yeah. have so little <laughs> deep thought about uh, anything that's, that's going on. I mean, we don't, have, we don't have access to a deeper complexity right now in terms well, you know, of... I mean, I, th I think there's been a lot of media forming of an image of Donald Trump, and then you're supposed to believe that image no matter what you experience in him. I, I just, in studying, you know, suggestion and propaganda, uh, he's about the, the worst propagandist that I've ever heard. I can barely listen to him for longer than, say, five or ten minutes because he doesn't entrain me emotionally. And I, I don't think I'm an There's outlier that. on that. I think he's irritating. <clears throat> At the same time, it, it's p people do line up for hours for a chance to hear him speak in person, and he, he attracts huge crowds. And do you, I think I know why. Do you think you know why? I don't think it's to listen to his astute political analysis. So no. What, what would it be? I, I think that he plays the heel in wrestling. I think he takes every position as a kind of outsider who's saying the wrong things, who's using the wrong words, 
who is not doing it the way the game is supposed to be played. And I think that's fascinating to people, that the way that, that politicians typically speak, you know, I mean, Joe Biden is not able to do this at length anymore, but you take a Kamala Harris or, oh, Barack Obama, man, I could listen to him for hours, or um, Cory Booker, or, I mean, there are, there are many, you know, that entrain your emotions, you're meant to go along with them, you can go along with them easily. And I don't find that with Donald Trump. I, and I think he is more like the heel. I think he goes against the grain. I think people want to hear it because they feel he specifically does not sound like a politician. He wasn't a politician. He doesn't do politics. And I think that, for a large number of people, that's refreshing. Well, it doesn't seem like it certainly attracts big crowds. Yeah, it's so. It, there's something about you know all the familiar ways that we would look at, say, a politician or a leader or someone who would. There's something. There's a, there's a kind of rage that that is rising in our culture, and I think you know Donald Trump is a mirror for that. So the fact that he's so unintelligent and all the other things that uh, break the stereotypes, it's just he's, he's triggering something, and um, so, it's yeah. extremely well, destructive. But when you we say that, I disagree with you yeah. completely. I yeah. think he's just on the other side of that. The, yeah. the heel in wrestling is, is a variation of the bad boy. Right. Yeah. And the bad boy has always been an attractive figure. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Um, Not because he's violent, but because he doesn't follow the rules. I think it's created but a I kind of violence that's I think that's part of his appeal. Um, yeah. But um, I think there's, there's, there's more to it than that. Well, I think there's much more to it than that, but I think that part of the difficulty when you say, for example, that he has created a violence, I, I do not think it's he. I think it is we. And I think we have been, well, I think we he's liberals, just, yes, it's have not, been it's creating. not the man. It's what's but been no, created. No, 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 no. We liberals have been creating a propaganda line about war, about censorship, and about global governance. And we want to blame that propaganda on somebody else. Instead of, say, instead of saying that we have been, you know, actually not talking about what politicians have been doing who are on the left. We've been letting it go under the wire. We've been smoothing it over with censorship. And consequently, we've created a propaganda that a lot of people recognize as propaganda. And so when they hear Donald Trump, whom I did not vote for, they actually hear something that's refreshing, that seems like it's not in training. It's not bringing you along on the other line, you know, along that line of not telling you really what's going on, but telling you a story to cover what's going on. That's where I feel there's a problem with well, the propaganda in the mix of things as they, as they exist right now. I think now. we're going a little far afield from the nature of propaganda and its relationship to the suggestion that the fact that something is in training is not necessarily the cause for resentment. For example, um, what you were talking about before, if if you if you if someone is saying what you want to hear, if it reinforces your prejudices, right. if it makes you feel somehow more virtuous than the the liberals, or makes you feel or whoever you know the the outgroup more virtuous uh, than the other side, or, or however the, whoever the outgroup may be at the moment, uh, then you do want to get in training. There's a sense of 
empowerment that comes in a, if you're in a crowd like that and you're listening and you know, in, in analysis, what corresponds to that is what's called a folio do, mm -hmm. where the, the analyst loves the patient, the patient loves the analyst, and they're, they're a happy couple, you know. Mm -hmm. And sure, there are rough spots like any happy couple, but there's no, you know, there's no question. There's no room. That they're, that they're, that they're on the same wavelength, okay? Right. Rough spots aside, of course, there are always rough spots, but we're on the same wavelength. And so... That itself is a basic assumption mentality. Right, right. But it's not necessarily that anybody objects to it. No, it, I agree it, with it you. May be, it may be very welcome. And, and you know, one of, one of the, you know, there are a lot of people, people who are sort of studying analysis, let's say, and they're buying the idea that what you have to do is make the patient feel accepted. Right. And that if you make them feel accepted and show that you still love them, and you know you're non-judgmental that that by itself is going to heal them right which i think is a is a fully idea i think the patient wants to know wants to believe that oh good i don't have to do any work i just have to sit here and be loved and the analyst for her part says i can cure you know my love is omnipotent my love will heal people so mm. it's a win-win for both of them but it's nuts well, the thing, so, you know, entrainment is not necessarily unpleasant. Well, the th no, I was saying that entrainment usually is pleasant. I was saying that great orators, people that bring you along, it's much easier to follow propaganda when it's easy to confirm, you know, your own biases through it. If you are following, say, the propaganda that confirms your bias, you don't even feel uncomfortable for a moment. But the way that you start to look for the truth, because I was listening to Yuval Harari talking the other day with an interviewer. He says the truth is always painful. And I think that's one reason why people have a hard time disconfirming their biases. Because it's always painful to find out that you didn't know what was going on, or you didn't know what was true. Again, in scientific experiments, the way the experiment is put together is to disconfirm the hypothesis so that you have to be able to falsify what you claim to be true in order to actually, you know, conduct an experiment on it. And so if, for example, you have a belief that you can never test because it, you always say, you know, I believe this just by my feelings or by my peer group or by my, let's say, basic assumption, you know, sort of in the situation that I'm dependent on someone, I believe my, my you know, that this is just a good thing to do. If you can't test that, you can never know whether it's true or not. You know, you just, all you can say is, this is what I believe. So the, I think the reason that science came into existence was really to test, you could say, the propaganda of the church. You know, the propaganda that, at least at that point, that God was omnipotent and omniscient. And that there was some other way to think about that that would disconfirm it. That there was a way to test that. 
So, you know, if you move from propaganda to truth, it's always painful. Don't you think? Even in analysis? Sometimes it's a relief. It's not always painful. Sometimes if you can say something, if someone has a mistaken idea that you're against them, for example, and you manage to somehow get through that, it's a relief. So it's not always painful, but it's, it's often painful. It's often painful. But it's a particular kind of pain, because some of the questions you're asking is, you know, how do you know the difference between something that's true and something that isn't? And I can, I can only speak about what happens in psychoanalysis, because uh, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. It's a, very, it's a huge question. Mm -hmm. I cannot answer it in any general sense. And I like to just uh, confine myself to talking what I know about, talking about what I know about. So in psychoanalysis, I wrote a paper years ago called What is a Clinical Fact? Mm -hmm. And basically, I defined it in a negative way. I said, mm -hmm. I said it's, it's arrived at and your emotional relationship to it is ambivalent. Mm -hmm. It's not what you expected. It doesn't confirm your theories right. as a rule. And it gives a sense of how little you can do and the limitations. You know, if you're at this, in the movies, like this is, this is a, a caricature, of course, but the aha moment, mm -hmm. you know, bats, bats, my father. If you're going even a little bit in that direction, if you find yourself even a little bit standing there, you're probably wrong. That's right. I would agree. Uh, and there has to, it has to be tinged with sadness, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And exactly. it has to be has to have an air of modesty about right. it. And you have to be aware that no matter how brilliantly you may formulate this this insight, the patient may not get it, or they may get it and not give a damn. Mm -hmm. oh, then you know. So that was that's a sort of negative definition. Of how you know you're on the right track. <laughs> no, I, I think that's, it sounds like a joke, but I was I was perfectly yeah, serious. You know, I, think I presented this at a, at, a, at a big conference uh -huh. in in New York in '97, I think, uh -huh. and it wasn't that well received, I have to say. But I still like it. I, th I like it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty close to science. I mean, I think that if you you know in really good science, what you're doing is you're formulating something because you think it's a position that will open up a good debate or a good argument. You're not formulating science because you think you've got the absolute truth. You're always in, in, in interaction with a group of scientists. And so you're formulating something as a hypothesis. And you're saying, this is my best bet. But, you know, as Donald Hoffman said in the interview, I assume somebody's gonna knock it down you know, because I'm a scientist. And so you're, you're ambivalent about standing up for it. You know, you're not like, hooray. It's more like, here's where we are right now. And then you'll see if it works. But if it's formulated in such a way that it cannot be falsified, that it's, so for me, when you say ambivalent, for me, what that means is it's, you're saying something that, has the recognition of, you know, that it's momentary, that it's for now, that it's not perfect, that it's not going to last, but this is where you stand for now. You know, this is your best bet for the truth right now. And then you wait to see what happens with that. Because we have confirmation bias that's so strong as humans,
most of the time, what we do is kind of assimilate everything that we perceive to the system that we already have. It's very hard for us to let in something that's really different that might be really true because it means it shakes up our whole system. It doesn't just shake up an idea. It shakes up our whole being. And that's what Piaget was talking about, that we assimilate when we can and we accommodate when we must because we are made in such a way that, you know, it's not just easy to change our minds. And if it were, then there wouldn't be any propaganda. You know, propaganda couldn't work. But it works because we have a strong confirmation bias. We do like what we like and we know what we know. And, you know, social media comes in to confirm that again and again and again. And as the social dilemma points out, Google found out that it can do that for us. It can round up all the opinions that we already have, throw us media, you know, that will support those opinions. And then those opinions are strengthened. And it doesn't matter what others say, because we assume that we have the truth. And to me, that's the most dangerous situation when we assume that. I'd, li I'd like to tie that, that old paper that I just mentioned into what I've been doing more recently, because I think what I've been doing more recently sheds light on why what I said in that paper was true, as I mean to maintain that it was. The emotional constellation that I'm talking about is what happens when the analyst realizes that he's not practicing suggestion. In other words, you make an interpretation and you realize that the patient really is free. You've succeeded in letting the patient really be free to make what they want of it, including well, you know, whatever they're going to do with it, which you might consider is a terrible distortion, misunderstanding, or a hostile response, or whatever. That's okay. Because you're not practicing suggestion and you can actually do quite a bit of analysis by picking up on the suggestion that's going both ways. You know, the, the patient is practicing suggestion on you because they're trying to mold you and shape you into whatever their shape, their emotional needs demand, and you're doing that with them. Okay? Mm -hmm. You can do quite a bit of analysis by tuning into that, right? right? By keeping an eye on that. Yeah. And analyzing that. Used to be called analyzing resistance. Well, but you're analyzing yourself. Too. Your own resistance, as well as the resistance of the it's, other. It's not just resistance. It's more positive than resistance. Resistance is, you know, no, no, no. Well. Or, this is, you know, what shape would you like me to be? What shape? Who do you need me to be? Well, and the, the transference. You well, I do think at. resistance is subtle, and I oh, think because no. I think it's based on the confirmation. No, no, it is, I'm sorry, it is resistance. I forgot to say that. It's yeah. not just resistance. It's, it's it's broader than that, because it's also you know, not what just patient not wanting to hear what they don't want to hear. It's the patient wanting you to be who they want you to be. Right. Right. And and you're doing the same thing with them. And that's how suggestion enters, enters into analysis. And other forms of, of psychotherapy, in my opinion, do not really address that. They use the force of suggestion, so-called positive transference, mm -hmm. 
to subtly shape people and you know approval on one end, disapproval on the other, very subtle over time. It's not clear what's that it's being done, but it rests on this underlying positive transference that that they they love you and they think you're you're a great person and, and no one's understood them quite the way you ever have and so on. You know, some of which is quite justified because probably no one ever has it the way you do, or maybe they have, but you use it. The point is not what's producing the positive transfers, but the point is you're using it to shape them. You're using this attachment to you to shape them. And parents do that with children. So your question is, eat your spinach, it has vitamins. Is that propaganda? I don't know how other forms of treatment work. I know how I work. I know what I subscribe to, but I wouldn't want to leave it that I would say, I, I, I don't know, when people work more with an idealizing transference, with self-object transference and so on, it may be effective in ways I don't know about because I actually haven't worked that way. And, and like with science, you know, I think there's a limit to the way that I work. And I work very much with the sort of disconfirming of the confirmation bias as much as I can with what you might call resistance or defenses or, you know, and I know I have them too. Um, so it's, it's more, the way that I work is more, I would say, uncomfortable than comfortable. But I don't know if people work in some other way. It might have good outcomes, but I haven't, you know, I haven't been in that kind of treatment, nor do I do it. So I, I, I mean, I do feel that there may be a way that clarifying somebody's attachment to you and then dealing with the conflicts between the two of you may also be a way of working. Well, then, then you're a good analyst. Well, I mean, I, I don't... I mean, I mean, in, in my humble opinion, you're talking about what a good analyst does. All I wanted to say was I didn't want to let it stand that we might be criticizing a whole way that analysts work that I don't know that much about. Well, so. we aren't. Well, I, I, I am. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is an I here. All right, all right. I just, you know, I, I guess I, uh, I don't know how other, I, I mean, I, I think that the idealizing transference and the positive transference can be used in any number of ways, and I, I don't use them in some of those ways. And, and okay, you, I'm, and sure, you I'm sure you'll be forgiven for having... Having me say what I said. No, no, I'm Allowing not. Me to say what yeah. I said. It's okay. Yeah. It's all right. But you call that a propagandizing of the treatment. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so, you know. You're using yeah. the transference as a tool mm -hmm. for persuading the patient, however subtly, which is different from simply telling them the truth. You have, you have an end in mind. If, you're, if your intention is to convey the truth, then you say what you say without worrying about, uh, you know, within limits, without worrying about what impact it's going to have. If you're propagandizing, you're worried about nothing but what impact it's going mm -hmm. to have. Mm -hmm. So you were going to then say that parents want vitamins and so on. Is that a propagandizing statement when the parent says, are parents teaching their children to just 
believe in a basic assumption when they say things like eat your spinach because it has lots of vitamins or don't stare at the computer because it will harm your eyes because are they I mean you chose two things in your your right has some empirical uh, facts that show that you know spinach has vitamins right and it's good for you and it's a green leafy and a lot of iron and a lot of iron and look and there's tons and tons look at you with your interest in Wi-Fi and, and, and 5G, there's so much documentation on the effect of looking at screens for a long time for children. So parents, I think, are being, are being responsible and conscious there. I, I, I salute them for uh, having the ability to care enough to get their kids to eat the uh, spinach and not well, spend well, hours well, on well, the... Well, see, uh, part of the problem there is, I mean, I agree yeah, with you that yeah. spinach has I vitamins. I mean, you can just, you know, <laughs> you can get really intellectual about all this no, stuff. No, no, and, no, no, but it's just that if the parents are using something in order to promote something else... Well, yes, else, yes. Like, they're using their, you know sort of status as God to say, eat your spinach. What they're doing primarily is trying to control the kid, trying to get the kid to do what the parent wants the kid to do. And then they're using apparently facts or rationales to back that control. And that's where it starts to sound like propaganda. Not to say that you shouldn't do this, but it just, you know, you, you, can, wanna, you may be teaching your child. You don't want to let your kids loose in the kitchen. <laughs> right, but you may be teaching your child to, you know, follow the leader. Well, doesn't, isn't, than, isn't that one of the roles of a parent with a child? Is well, to, I mean, it's arguable with little children, <laughs> yes, but after a while that the parent well, yes, you know, may want while, to yes, set up yes. a situation yeah. where the child gets a chance to test it. I mean, I, I read once where Jung, it was a kind of awful letter, I thought, but Jung wrote a letter to one of his analyst friends who was saying something like, you know, I don't know what to do about this teaching my kid about smoking and drinking. The kid was like, I don't know, I want to say 10 to 12. Jung says, let him smoke a cigar and drink a glass of whiskey and he'll never want one again. Because actually, it was, an ex- it was like yeah. an experiment, you know. Yeah. Instead of saying, yeah. don't smoke because it's bad for your health, yeah. he was saying, let the child right. conduct an experiment, right. which I don't think is fair either. Right. But I just wonder, what do, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think the parent who is trying to get the child to eat the spinach, mm-hmm. they're not discussing the nutritional value of spinach. Right. They're trying that's, to get the child to eat spinach. That's all they're doing. That's controlling, okay? Yeah. So what? I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah. And, you know, you're, they're kids, so, yeah. right? They need, they, they need, need control. They need adult supervision. <laughs> right. The, the, I guess that's what the, I would say, adult the, supervision. What I'm talking about in my book is specifically what, what makes it interesting for me, because those situations, you know, so what? For me yeah. is when it happens in analysis, which it does mm-hmm. at all times, you have desires for your patients. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, desires other than they wish they would hear the truth. You have desires for how they should be. You want them to stop smoking, for example, like, mm-hmm. them, like a parent. You can look at that and when you find yourself wishing for it and say, well, why? This is an adult. You know, she's got her own life. Why am I, you know, harping, you know, or, or trying, not harping because I don't harp, I'm an analyst, but trying to, <laughs> you know, convey the idea that this is a bad idea, you know, don't smoke. That's Christopher the Mill. So, no, no, I agree. You know, if you find yourself in general acting like a parent to another adult, 
rather than would be appropriate for a child, but you're treating another adult that way, that's countertransference and that's what you need to, to analyze. The spinach thing reminded me that the, the very first cartoon and the very right. first issue of the New Yorker was <laughs> yeah. Mother with a Kid. Right. And the mother saying, it's broccoli, dear. And the kid says, I say it's spinach, and I say to hell with it. Right, right, right. Well, you know, I mean, and there you could see that the child is like a truth seeker, you know. And so there are ways to look She's at these. Not, not going to fall for that. Well, there, yeah, there, there are ways to look at parenting, even, at different stages of development. Kids should have a chance to find their own way with it, to find out if, you know, this really works for them, because spinach doesn't work for every kid. Um, so it's, it's just when you use something, when you use facts and reasoning to support controlling somebody else, you know, yes. oh, do this because of this, you could argue that, that if you're trying to control them primarily, that that is like propaganda. On the other hand, if you're actually trying to teach them about, you know, spinach and so on, you eventually would say, okay, this is what spinach is. And, you know, if you eat it, these will happen. And if not, not. And you have to make a choice, you know, because it isn't like spinach is good for everybody. All people don't like it. I think that, again, the, the thing that I find that I come back to as testing for the truth is if I can hold something in such a way that I could say, yes, I could see the other side of the argument. I right. could falsify this. I can't, I, you know, here's where I stand. I think spinach is good. And yet I can understand that some people may never like it or eat it, or, and they'd be fine without it, you know, so that I'm not using that to try to bring a controlled outcome, but I'm using it instead to try to show the truth about something. Yeah. And, and I think you could see that in various kinds of arguments that people make. I think you see it in belief systems. And I think you see it also in dialogues. If there can't be two sides, two things that have two sides, because there can only be one side because it has to turn out that way, that's more like propaganda. You know, then you're trying to control. You're not trying to find the truth. And while it's it's hard to find the truth in media. I think one way to look at it is that usually it's going to be somewhat painful. It's going to be ambivalent. It's not going to be perfect. And also, it will allow for the other side. There will be a chance that it can be falsified. It's not going to say, this is it, this is the absolute truth, and nothing else can enter into this debate. Because as humans, we don't know the absolute truth. We don't know what the situation is here. And that is actually the truth, is that we don't know. That's a powerful so. place to end. <laughs> so. Well, one, one, one very wise analyst once said, you should never, ever let the patient forget that everything you say is only your opinion. Right. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.